0: you please open in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We will be spending Holy Week in Hebrews. Hebrews 1 and 2 for this morning. I read an article the week before last that caught my attention. Although it really was not unusual, as I think you'll see but it nevertheless caught my attention fresh. It was about a young college student, a Christian, studying social work at a state university. The very reason she decided to study social work was because she wanted to have training in such a way that she could obey Christ's command to visit those in prison, to care for the needs of the poor, For the widow and for the orphan. With zeal to follow obediently her Savior, she entered this program in social work. But as her course of study went on and it became clear of her faith in Jesus Christ and her belief that the Bible is actually the inerrant Word of God, Those realities as they came to the foreground made her increasingly isolated from her fellow classmates and even the object of scorn to those who were teaching her. In our secular society that is increasingly hostile to evangelical Christianity, this story is all too familiar. We could tell it a dozen times over with slightly different details and different people. Christians in our society are seen as hate-filled hypocrites. Intolerant. And really completely out of touch with reality as viewed through the eyes of the world. So, is it any wonder that so many Christians in our day are jumping ship. Everybody, including you, including me, let's just take stock for a moment, everybody is tempted to keep their faith to themselves in the public square. We don't really want to come out as followers of Jesus too soon or with too many people. But, there are some, an increasing number in our day, who are deconstructing their faith. You've maybe read about this. People who are dissecting and eventually rejecting the faith that they grew up with. I don't know that this is new, but it is all over Christian news, this deconstruction stories. Because of very famous people that are deconstructing their faith. Some go so far as to completely throw it all away and adopt the philosophy of the age. The challenges that we face in our day are very real to us and they are unique to our age, and yet, they are not new at all. We see this in the book of Hebrews written to a group of professing Christians likely living in Rome who are being persecuted for their faith as we read on in the book and get to chapter 10 we see some of the specifics of what they're dealing with they were being publicly exposed to reproach and to affliction does that sound like what we see in our day Some of them had been put in prison. Others had experienced the plundering of their property. They weren't being killed. This is what I want us to take note of. This isn't like during the days of Nero when they're being handed over to the lions. They're not being killed for their faith, but they're not very popular. And they're being publicly ridiculed and opposed. Very similar to what we're experiencing in our day. And so some of them, if I can say it this way, all the way back then were deconstructing their faith. One way that this showed up was that some of them who had been previously Jews, but then who had professed faith in Jesus Christ, they were saying, We will just fall back into Judaism because it's safer. You see, in the Roman Empire, the Jewish religion was legally. Protect it. So they would just take a step back from full-fledged faith in Christ. Still be very religious, but not embrace this radical message of God who became man, was crucified for our sins, and then risen from the grave. Some of them were going even further and i think they were beginning to wonder if what they believed at first was really true you see at first they had believed that jesus was the promised messiah and at first they had believed that following his crucifixion that he was raised from the dead which validated and vindicated His crucifixion and established Him as the promised Davidic Messiah who would have an everlasting kingdom over all of the earth, who even now was seated at the right hand of the throne of God, reigning over all, and who one day would put all of His enemies under their feet. They believed that at the beginning. But as they began experiencing oppression and opposition they began to wonder is this really true it sure doesn't seem like all things are under the authority of jesus it sure doesn't seem like his enemies will put be put under his feet any time soon is he really the messiah or have we believed a bag of lies is all of this really worth it? Is Jesus really worth it? I imagine that the crowds that welcomed Jesus on the first Palm Sunday may have felt the same way. As He comes into town on a donkey, they hail Him as King. But His triumphal entry didn't seem so triumphant a few days later as the religious leaders are opposing Him as He's arrested, as He is tried as a common criminal, as He is then crucified on a cross and then buried in a borrowed grave, is He really the Messiah? Is He really the King? Do you ever feel that way? Maybe not in your head, rejecting Jesus as King and Messiah. But do you ever feel that way when you hear of yet another school shooting? When you hear of yet another untimely death of somebody that you love? When the sexual revolution continues to advance at breakneck speed, do you ever wonder Is Jesus really the King? Is He really God who took on flesh? Is He really risen from the grave? Because it sure doesn't feel like it right now. What is the antidote for us when we feel like this? When we are prone to doubt? When we are prone to even maybe throw in the towel? What is the answer for those who are deconstructing their faith. You know some of them. Some of you may be here this morning. There's a lot being written on this right now on the blogosphere. But the best stuff that is being written is calling for something very simple, but the main thing. And that is we need to again Turn our eyes upon Jesus. We need to look to Jesus and see Him for who He really is. And with the eyes of faith, to believe it, to embrace it. That's what the author of the book of Hebrews is doing. The whole book is designed to show us, to convince us, but not just in our head, but to believe in our hearts that Jesus is better. He is certainly better than the Judaism that His readers were tempted to drift back into. Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus speaks a better word than the word that He spoke by the prophets. In fact, He wants them to see as they read on that all that the prophets had spoken was pointing to Jesus. He's better than Moses. He's better than the Mosaic Covenant. He's better than Joshua. He's better than the high priest in the Old Covenant. And above all, He offers a better sacrifice for our sins. Jesus is the perfect revelation of who God is and of what God has done to save a people for Himself. That's what He wants us to see. But he also wants to warn that those who abandon this better word through a process of deconstructing their faith, that they are in danger of coming under God's judgment. But he also not only wants to warn, but to promise that those who hold steadfast in their faith, firm to the end, though they suffer now, they will reach their reward. So how do we endure? We look to Jesus. We see that He is better than any other word. What other words are you listening to or looking at on your phone? He is better than any other word that promises any other way He is preeminent, would be the best word. He is supreme. He is greater than all systems, all things, all people. My great prayer for you this morning is that you would come to see that. To know that He is worth it. So that you would be helped in enduring in the faith. My main text for this morning is Hebrews 2 verses 6-18, to I'll be drawing some on chapter 1 as well. This morning, we are going to see that Jesus is the new and the better Adam. The text doesn't tell us that He's the better Adam, but I believe that's essentially the point being made in chapter 2. Jesus succeeded where Adam failed, but He also suffered... For Adam's hell-bound race, as the hymn says. And that is the key to us getting the point of this text. The suffering of Jesus is what helps us to make sense of the suffering we face in this life as we await His return. The suffering of Jesus and His subsequent glory is what we need if we are going to endure. Because you see, the way He went is the way we will go if we are in Him. If we endure in the faith, if we finish the race, we will meet Him at the finish line. So would you please stand for the reading of God's Word, beginning in verse 6 through the end of the chapter. and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. My sermon in a sentence is those who trust in Jesus will go the way that he went but this needs a fair amount of explaining so i have 3 points to drive this home the first point will simply lay out where jesus went the way that he went in verses 6 to 9 and then in verses 10 to 17 we'll consider how it's possible for those who trust in him to go the way that he went and then lastly how all of this is a help to us to encourage us to be steadfast in the faith. So let's begin with the way Jesus went. I said earlier that Jesus is the new and better Adam. And the text doesn't say that, but one of the reasons I say that that is the case is because of the quotation of Psalm 8 in Hebrews 2, verses 6 to 8. The author quotes Psalm 8 saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? I believe these verses in Psalm 8 are intentionally looking back to Genesis 1 where man is created in the image of God. The word in Genesis 1 for man created in the image of God is Adam. The Adam, humanity, was privileged. God gave humanity dominion over all of the earth. Psalm 8, commenting on this dominion given over all of the earth, says God crowned Him with glory and with honor. He put all things under His feet. But as verse 8 says, even though God originally put all things under humanity's feet, at present, I think this is a key verse in the passage, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. As we look around, it doesn't seem like all things are in subjection to humanity, does it? Why is that? It's because of sin. God gave humanity, authority, rule over all creation. That's part of what it meant for them to bear God's image. God has rule over all things. So as His image bearers, He gave humanity rule over creation. But that rule was always subject to God's rule. Man was called to live under God's authority. But Adam rebelled against God's word. Adam rebelled against God's authority. And when that happened, everything fell apart. So we don't see everything in subjection to humanity. We learn in Genesis chapter 3 that the fall leads to things like pain in childbirth, the ground. That we are called to work produces thorns and thistles. We earn our living by the sweat of our brow, so to speak. And what is more, we are all subject to death. And so we, along with all creation, are very aware that this world is not in subjection to humanity. We groan. As Bob Dylan says, everything is broken. Broken cutters, broken saws, broken buckles, broken laws, broken bodies, and broken bones, people speaking on broken phones. Take a deep breath feel like you're choking? Everything is broken. Does that describe your experience? Or what? Do you ever feel that way? Like you can't even take a breath in this world without choking? Like everything is broken? We don't need a sociologist to point this out. Just read one headline of one news article. And we will know. Or as I encourage you to do every week, look at the prayer page in this bulletin. You don't need me to convince you that everything is broken. Or maybe better yet, not just looking out there. Simply replay the reruns of your life and your mind. Everything is broken. In Adam, the world is fallen. But Jesus. (laughs) But Jesus. He comes into this fallen world to redeem it as the new and better Adam. So Psalm 8 points backward to Genesis 1. But in verse 9 of Hebrews 2, we see that Psalm 8 also points forward to Jesus who came. We may not see everything in subjection to Adam, verse 9, but we see Jesus. That may be the simplest way to put my entire sermon. We may not see everything in this world in subjection to Him, but we see Jesus. Who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. This verse tells us something about the path that Jesus walked. And here's my first point. Jesus suffered before He was seated on the throne. The order is so critical for us to get. As the new Adam, Jesus suffered before He was crowned with glory and with honor. Jesus was for a little while made lower than the angels. We read, if ever the Scriptures made an understatement, Here it is. He was made lower than the angels for a little while. In chapter 1, as Joe prayed earlier, we see that before Jesus became fully man, He already existed and He was fully God. Chapter 1, verse 2, we see that through Him, all things were created. But He's not only God's agent in creation, which clearly establishes Him as God. We are told explicitly that He is God. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus. The exact imprint of His being. Friends, if you are in doubt that the Scriptures teach the full deity of Jesus Christ, there may be no better verse than this. He is the radiance of the glory of God. When we see Jesus, we see God. The exact imprint of His nature. The author of creation. Yet, He left the gaze of angels. came to seek and save the lost. And exchanged the joy of heaven for the anguish of a cross. For a little while, He was made lower than the angels. What that means is that He condescended. He took on flesh. But now we're told, He has been crowned with glory and honor. But here's the thing. Not until He first made purifications for sins. As chapter 1, verse 3 says. Not before He suffered death. As chapter 2, verse 9 says. The path that Jesus walked is the path that we want to walk on too because it was a path that led to great glory. But it was a path that walked through great suffering. Jesus died before He was raised from the dead and seated at God's hand, right hand. He had to bear the cross before He would wear the crown and the same will be true for us as well. We will not pay the price for anybody's sin, but we will have to suffer before we reach our reward and if we endure in the faith we know that we will go the way that he went if we trust in him firm all the way to the end he will be awaiting us at the finish line but how is this possible and that leads to the second point that comes out in verses 10 to 17 and this is my feeble summary of what we see in these verses. Jesus suffered as a man to bring us to God. Jesus suffered as a man to bring us to God. There's a line in verse 10 that really struck me. but Let me back up before I get to it. Think back to Palm Sunday. Think back to a first century Jew, first hearing the Gospel. For people looking for a king in the Roman Empire who would immediately deliver them from all of their troubles, Jesus was surely a disappointment to them. Not only did His journey to Jerusalem lead to His own opposition and death, all who follow Him after His resurrection were also opposed and exposed to ridicule and scorn, as we read in Hebrews 10, as we could read in any one of the epistles in the New Testament. But the author of Hebrews says, it was fitting for He, for whom and through whom all things were created, in bringing many sons to glory, that He should make the founder of their salvation perfect, through suffering. What he is saying is that even though it may not make any sense to anyone who was waiting for a Savior, this was the most appropriate thing that could have ever happened. The Savior had to suffer before he enters his glory, because that's the only way we can follow him in the way that he went. Now, when it says that He made the founder of salvation perfect through suffering, it does not mean that Jesus was imperfect before He suffered, before He went to the cross. The word perfect is difficult to translate in the book of Hebrews. But what we know, the the root word is telos. You're maybe familiar with that. It has to do with the end, the finish line if you will. It has to do with this notion of completing a course. And so what it means is that Jesus finished the course that God had set before Him. And that course, that path, involved a cross before the crown was bestowed. But Jesus finished the race and He was crowned. And this is necessary if we want to follow Him on that same path from suffering to glory. Do you want to follow Him? Then we need to see Him for who He is. Why was it necessary for Jesus to suffer for us? Because in Adam, we all deserve death. And if Jesus is going to serve as a substitute for our sins, which is what the Bible tells us that he is, then he had to be made like us. If he's going to die for Adam's hell-bound race, he has to become a member of Adam's hell-bound race. And so verse 11 says he's not ashamed to call us brothers. Verse 14 says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, all of Adam's race, we all share in flesh and blood. For that reason, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Let that set in for a moment. He was not ashamed to call them brothers. I think it's fair to say there are a number of teenagers in here today. Firstborn teenagers. Maybe secondborn. Secondborn. Is it a stretch to say that you are, from time to time, ashamed of your siblings? Maybe simply slightly embarrassed by them, but sometimes you don't even want to be seen with them, especially if your friends are around and your reputation is at stake. In those moments, you definitely don't want them talking to your friends, but some of you, you would just prefer it if your siblings don't talk at all. You are flat out ashamed of them. We can relate to this. All of us have been ashamed, let's just be honest, of a family member at some point in time. And wouldn't it be completely appropriate for Jesus to be ashamed of the race of Adam? The Holy One. Ashamed of sinners. But the text tells us He wasn't ashamed to call us brothers. He calls us family. He became one of us. And this is necessary, as I said, because of Adam's fallen race. He had to become one of us. Jesus suffered on the cross before He was seated at the right hand of God. We've already said that. The cross comes before the crown. But this is what I want you to get here. The cradle comes before the cross. Let me put it this way. You have to have Christmas in order to have Good Friday. You have to have Good Friday in order to have Easter. Jesus had to become one of us in the flesh if He was going to die for us. And his death comes before his victorious resurrection, so that he can take us who were doomed to die where he has gone, at the right hand of the Father. What did his solidarity with man? What did his suffering for man accomplish? Oh, so much. He partook of the same things, we are told. What a great verse! that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death." That is the devil. "...and to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery." Why did He have to walk the path that He walked from glory, exaltation, to humiliation in His incarnation, and His crucifixion before He was exalted again, because He had to come and get us who were held in bondage to slavery and sin, who were living our lives in fear of death and rightfully so living in fear of death. He had to come as a propitiation for our sins. An atoning sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God that we all deserve in our sin. He had to do that. He had to come and get us so that He could take us to the Father. And in doing so, He defeated all of our enemies. As chapter 1, verse 13 says. Following His incarnation, His death, His resurrection, He sat down at the right hand of God and He will remain there until God makes His enemies a footstool for His feet. So let me come back to the crux of the issue. It may not feel like all things are in subjection to Jesus. I feel you, as they say. I get it. But we need to know with the eyes of faith as we look to Jesus that He is at the Father's right hand. He has been exalted. He has been given a kingdom that will last forever and that is over all things. That is true already. He is already the King. But His kingdom has not yet finally and fully come to fruition. But because He came, because He suffered, because He died, and because He is risen from the dead, we can have confidence that one day all things will be put completely under His feet. His enemies will be subject to Him. And guess what? That means our enemies will be dealt with as well, so we don't have to worry about it. We don't have to take it into our own hands. We can simply fix our eyes on Jesus and follow hard after Him. If we trust in Jesus, we will go the way that He went. Later in chapter 10, verse 37, the author says, Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. So Jesus, for a little while, had to be made lower than the angels before He was crowned with glory and honor. Yet in a little while, for us, the coming One, He will come. And when He comes, He will put all of His enemies under His feet. Sure, it is a hard road now, but we know, that He is waiting those who follow Him faithfully at the finish line. And that leads me to the final point in verse 18. It's Jesus' suffering that helps us to continue steadfast in the faith. Verse 18 closes in a way that was surprising to me as I read it first. He says, For because He Himself suffered when tempted... He is able to help those who are being tempted. So what is our temptation? The temptation that is in view in the book of Hebrews is the temptation to defect. It's the temptation to throw in the towel. It's the temptation to jump ship. To say the opposition to our faith in this world is too much. I'm going to divert my course to an easier course. Friends, did you know that Jesus Himself was tempted to do the very same thing? He was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. I certainly think He was tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane. And yet, He held firm all the way to the end for the joy that was set before Him. You see, He saw the prize at the finish line. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And He is seated there as our great High Priest, ready to help us right now who are facing the same temptation. He succeeded where we so often fail But He is a high priest who is able to sympathize with us. He knows what it is like. So He is able to help us in our time of need. And because He is our great high priest, we can go to God with confidence in prayer and ask for the help that we need. Later again in Hebrews 10, the author calls his readers to remember. Remember the days right after they first came to faith, how they were so zealous. They believed what they had heard and so they were willing to suffer persecution, suffer rebuke. He even goes on, as I mentioned earlier, to say they were willing to endure the plundering of their property, but why? Because they were confident that they had a better possession. So they were willing to lose their possessions because they were confident they had a better possession. And here's the thing. Because Jesus is the better Adam, those who are in Him have a better possession. So as the world is speaking a word to you, calling you to abandon the faith that you first had, you need to know that all of their lies All of those words that are promising you a better life, they're not better. Jesus is better. He really is. And we who are in Him have a better possession. Those who remain steadfast in the faith will go the way that Jesus went. Would you pray with me? Father, I first want to simply thank You that You didn't leave us in our sins, but You sent Your Son. How thankful we are that He was not ashamed to identify with us, to take on flesh and ransom us. We give You thanks. But Father, we are in need of great endurance. And so I pray that You would strengthen our faith. There are many in this room who are convinced in their head that Jesus is the Messiah. But that head knowledge has not moved down into their heart. And they're on the verge They're on the verge of falling off the path. Impress upon their minds the supremacy of Christ Your Son. Help them to believe that He really is better than all that this world has to offer. Help them to put away the false delusion that they can be safe if they will simply be silent, that they would be bold in witness, in word, and in deed, knowing that though we suffer now, our reward in Your Son is great indeed. In His name that we pray. Amen.